So, here we are. What's alive for you now? I can seriously struggling with the business of being okay with what I see happening to myself on all levels. I mean, some of it good. And for a very long time, in a much broader picture, and maybe this is my version of awakening, is to be okay no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. So, Martinea, how do you experience being okay no matter what happens? What does that look like for you? It looks closer to the truth than what I usually experience. And I think it says it all, just the fact that if I'm feeling okay, even though something is happening that maybe in the past or another time might have bothered me, triggered me, whatever words you want to use, and I've had a glimpse, as I think we all have, of a little time when you're surprised that you weren't ruffled or bothered by something that usually or you would think would cause you to strip. But instead, you're, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's not always joy, but there's a flatness, for lack of a better word, because you're not, you're not buffeted by life's changes or what have you. And that flatness comes from an area of stillness, so to speak, or silence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, you know, I think navigating illness, navigating age, you know, we live in a society that's absolutely obsessed with youth. And I was born in intensive pain, L.A. Yes, yeah. And, um, you know, the messages are that, you know, you're not okay. So to kind of find an inner sense of I'm okay no matter what is really cutting against the stream. It goes against the stream. And so the, um, you have your own spiritual practice. You have your own cultivation. You have your own years of, of doing that. And you've got friends around you who are who have a similar feeling. But the value system of the society that we're in is absolutely not like that. You know, the, you know, consumerism is based on the fact that you're not okay. And, and, and yes. it's totally based on the fact that you're not okay. And if you buy this or get that or achieve this or do that, then you will be okay. You know, so your okayness is highly contingent upon their advertising campaign. You know, and our practice is really about you know, finding a peace in the present moment. You know, finding a sense of ease in the present moment, no matter what's going on. You know. And sometimes, you know, the stuff that's going on is not easy. It's not easy stuff to be with. And even that fluctuates for me. There yeah. have been times where, and, and now my perception can be highly skewed, but it seems like, quote, uh, when I was younger in different situations, that life was um, easier, I was more in, engaged emotionally, and yet I don't know that that's really true. And I have changed physically and 
emotionally and so on. And it seems, I seem to have hit a plateau and every now and then I'll have a day that's kind of like, wow, you know, I'm really grateful, thanks, you know. And sometimes I say I'm really grateful when that's a struggle to say that. You know, and it's like good practice. <laughs> so, you know, and yet I, I feel that that would be a very desirable place, and maybe that's part of what waking up is about. But Martinet, the way there is here. Yes. Is just by being present with what's happening right now. Yeah. And so we have to let go of what we think it's supposed to look like. Oh yeah, that's and touch what's happening right now, and then feel how we're feeling it, and where there's any resistances to it, and soften around that. That's the way. And it's a moment by moment by moment by moment by moment by moment by moment practice. That's the way. Uh, I believe you. Now, still is challenging, but I believe you. Yeah. I was on a retreat last weekend at the Franciscan Center. I'm beginning to have a comfort in what I came away with were two words from the retreat that were not spoken, they just were my words, unfinished and unfolding. And I have a, I can catch myself, and in fact I did this morning, when being in more of our conditioned reality with seeing the finality of things, the permanence of things, and how it causes suffering. And more often than not, I'm seeing comfort, and that's the word that comes to my mind, comfort in things unfolding. Everything is unfolding. Mm-hmm. Nothing is finished. Mm-hmm. Not even with death. Nothing is finished. And it's continual unfolding. And there's a great comfort for me in that. There's a great uh, sort of like an exhalation. I can relax into it. Mm-hmm. So when, if I'm challenged with something, when I, and it may not be at that very moment, but when I can address it by saying it's, it's continually unfolding. And it helps me stay in, in moment-to-moment mm-hmm, mm-hmm. consciousness. Mm-hmm. But that's what I came away with last weekend, and it, um, I think it will serve me well as I move along. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I was thinking of it when you were speaking. And so hence... You can apply that to um, old age, sickness, and death, and what the Buddha, possibly the Buddha, would, the Buddha uh, understood was that you know our suffering comes with the finality of things, the finality of old age, and finality of sickness, and finality of death. And if I look at it, where it's an unfolding process, a part of the moment-to-moment consciousness. I feel that that suffering is minimalized or lessened, and maybe he was talking about that. I don't, you know. It just seems that if you look at all of, you look at all the the, the suffering we have in the world, from grasping and aversion and doubt and anxiety and whatever restlessness, you know, you look at that. We're, we're attaching a label to it, a time frame to it. And not letting it, things unfold. That, that's um, something that um, I continue to work with. And, mm-hmm. But I really, even this morning, I was just struck with, oh, Cindy, that's unfolding. Get over it. You mm-hmm. know, don't get 
rattled. Mm -hmm. You don't know. And in the meantime, when you are doing that and you are suffering, guess what you're missing? Mm -hmm. The birds singing. Mm -hmm. The the sunbeams. You know, Mm -hmm. whatever it is, you're missing all of that, which is the moment. Mm -hmm. What to think? Yeah. Yeah. I think any any way, any languaging, any way that helps us to shift our way of grasping onto stuff and saying this is it and this is how I am is is, is a movement towards um, ease, towards freedom, towards less suffering. Freedom. And a sense of awakening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or I, I, sometimes I equate awakening with just awareness. Mm-hmm. Those moments of awareness. Mm-hmm. That's a moment where you're awake to... Right. Be here now, right? I mean, yeah. The one of the problems with the languaging is is that people have an idea of what it is, which is sometimes different from just the immediacy of the present moment. You know, a movement away from grasping is a movement of awakening. It's a movement towards awareness. It's not. It can be right here. You know, it could just be a simple, relaxing, a, a tendency to shift the body. And one opens up to it instead, you know? It can be something so simple. Or even like in the morning, first thing when you get out of bed and you take a shower, you know, their mind hasn't grasped onto any idea of who we are. It's just there's the warmth and there's the wet and there's the standing and there's the soap. It, there's no grasping. But because this happens is such a normal part of what our day is, we don't I look at it as saying that there's anything about that which is unusual. But in that, there's no grasping. There's no attaching to anything. It's just a flow. It's an unfolding process. It's beautiful. But we miss it. And that's the thing about it being an acquired taste. One has to learn to recognize these simple things as actually how profound they are. You know, very, very simple, but very, very meaningful. This doesn't sound like it would be meaningful at first glance, but I was sitting this morning and I had been watching my friend's dog and the dog farted while I was sitting there. And it was, I mean, it was terribly (laughs) unpleasant. But when I actually sat with it, I realized that it only smelled on the inhale. Like on the exhale, it actually didn't smell at all. (laughs) But it's, you know, getting into that concept of this is going to be really unpleasant. And if I had, if I'd just gone into the concept, it probably would have, I would have thought that it would have smelled the whole time. But there was something about the inhale and the exhale. I mean, it was just, it was amazing <laughs> because it really didn't smell at all. And I was expecting it to be, I mean, because it was, you know, dog parts can be really unpleasant. But um, so just the whole idea of, you know, being present and not getting caught in the concept was. Mm-hmm. You eliminated half the problem just from that concept. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, if you want to get all mathematical and kind, which I think is amazing. Yeah. Because we, I don't often walk around and say, it, for me that would be like a refinement of what, really what's happening, and it could probably go beyond that. But what a great just that alone is pretty significant. Yeah. Well, it made me think, too, of how many other things I do that with. 
you know, where I think, or even with pain. I mean, if you're in pain, you're not in pain the whole time. There's mm-hmm. like periods of time where there's no pain, but there's still that feeling of, uh, you know. Residual. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but if you actually stay just present. But isn't it wonderful that you caught it? You caught it and you were able to see that on the exhale there was no smell. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant insight. Yeah. I mean, there's still the aversion on the inhale, but. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant insight. But again, after that comes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it is. I think it's it's very refined. I was around somebody who farted, and there was absolutely no consciousness, uh, self consciousness that arose for her around it. Mm. Zero. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that was impressive. <laughs> No movement, like none. I thought, wow. Yeah. But that's a concept within us. Mm. Yeah, these socially, you know, what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do and all the rest of that, you know. Yeah, the dog didn't care. Yeah, well, dogs are great because they totally don't care. They're really teacher, um, A.H. Almas, or Hamid, as some people know him, speak. And one thing that he said really resonated with me is he said that there is an abyss on each side of every moment, that every moment has no past and no future. And What I noticed came into my experience as a result of that was an incredible amount of spaciousness. Because I, when you say moment to me, I picture, you know, like moment is fast. And to put that this on each side of a moment just slowed it down incredibly so that there's just so much more space to like get what's going on and it's been a week and a half now and definitely my experience has shifted because of it Mm -hmm. just no matter what I'm doing there's and it allows much more awareness you know I just feel much more present and it's not all the time so here is some a very good example of of hearing something and being open and that openness resonates and that resonating with it allows uh, something to shift and so you know when I started the talk I was talking about how it's helpful to listen in an open receptive way so that when things resonate you know because sometimes things can be said in a context like this that can really help shift something and so when one is in an open, relaxed way, when one's listening, it, 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 it helps, um, it supports the shifting. It helps support, if there's going to be something that resonates like that, it helps support the shifting. Yeah, who would know what that would, how that would resonate with me? Yeah. It's a statement, yeah. and I didn't make a decision. It's like, oh, well, I'm going to get more space out of you. That didn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I just remembered it. 
but then I noticed what was happening in my experience. Mm -hmm. Well, so that's how that shows up for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like a different time frame with booze and with oil. Be more specific. I mean, like things happen so quickly, but yet things in in our conditioned time, things happen very very quickly. And yet, when we listen to the Buddha's teachings, things are broken down. For instance, like deconstructing something. I'm going to get tongue-tied here. It just seems like what you're saying is very true, that things happen very rapidly, but when we, when we start to break them down in our minds and we sit, we break them down and they become like isolated little pieces of something. And yet, in our conditioned existence, it's really fast. So if you deconstruct something and you break something down, that in your mind, you know, it doesn't happen really like that. But yet, do you know what I'm saying? Yes, well, I know that when I first started doing walking meditation, there was this weird sense of that I'd never walked before, and it was like yes. I had to learn how to That's do it again. That's a very good example. So, so, you know, we walk all the time, and we don't ever pay any attention to it. But when you slow it down and actually bring mindfulness to it, there's this feeling like, I don't know how to do it. Like, how do you, how do you put the pieces together in the right way? And so, yeah, yeah. So when you actually bring awareness and mindfulness to each component parts, it has a different experience of it mm-hmm. than when it's just this walking as a, as a lump activity. We don't think about it. But when we break it down into slowing it down into trying to bring mindfulness to it, it isn't a lump activity. There's all kinds of different parts to it. And if we're not attentive to what we're doing, it feels like we can't do it, you know. But then that ability to bring mindfulness to what's happening in the walking then can happen with depending, it doesn't matter what the speed is, so that once we begin to break it down, then we can then put it back together again in a way where the mindfulness can be present even if the speed is not slowed down. You know, so for example, for me, like tracking what happens for me with anger. So it took ages for me to be able to understand this black box, you know, because I would stuff it, stuff it, stuff it, and then explode, and I had absolutely no idea what happened. None. And then I began to deconstruct it, or began to get more clear about the signals, the body signals that I was experiencing, so that I could catch it beforehand. So the black box then began, I could see the pathways, you know. And then I could see, you know, the pressure that would build up and not being able to hold it and then just dumping it and then feeling terrible about it afterwards. But, the, you know, I could see how it worked. So, you know, the Buddha, you know, he did not create Buddhism. That was not his interest and his intention. And what happens anytime there's been a person around who's a wise person is, is that there's all kinds of form and tradition that emerge after the fact uh, to support you know he had things that he encouraged people to do because he thought that that was helpful for waking up but the the ceremony and the ritual and the stuff like that happened afterwards but what's interesting to me you know one of the chants I when I came back to the states you know I don't bow I did tonight I usually don't bow but and I haven't been doing very much chanting but in the monastery every time we'd sat down in front of the Buddha we'd bow and we had a whole liturgy of chanting that we would do in the morning and the evening time and we did it all the time so for 20 years I lived in the monastery and for 20 years we did the same chanting and it's like 
give me a break with the chanting, you know. <laughs> but the chanting, the story of one of the chantings that we did is actually an incredible, beautiful story. The Buddha had two chief disciples, Mahamogalana and Sariputta. And Sariputta was knew that he was going to die. And he asked to take leave of the Buddha in order to go back and say hello to his mom, say goodbye to his mom. Because his mom, bless her, had seven kids, all seven of whom were arhats. They were completely awakened people. And she thought all of them were just schleppy, no good, schlavelings that were just eating off of the lay people. I mean, she had no confidence or respect or faith at all. She had no idea the fact what it meant that they were enlightened and, and, and how important that was. Okay? Typical. Family. You know? So the Buddha gave permission to Sariputta to go back. And Sariputta was very clear seeing, could see that he, of all of everybody, could have a possibility of being able to get through. So Sariputta is the chief disciple of the Buddha. He's not a schlep. <laughs> He's a pretty switched-on guy. So as he was dying, you know, all the heavenly beings came to visit, you know, so there's the guardian kings and the, this one and that one and this one and that one. They, they'd come in and they'd fill the room up with light. And so the mom couldn't see them, but she just saw the room fill up with light. So she said, well, who was that? And so he would report, you know, that was the guardian kings and it was this one and it was that one, it was this one, it was that one. So she was a Brahmin. She was a Hindu. And so for her, the like the, the penultimate big deal dude was the Brahma, Lord Brahma himself. Lord Brahma came to visit Sariputta. And after each one of these beings would come and the room would fill up with light, you know, Sariputta would say, yeah, well, he's nothing compared to my teacher. You know, this one has got nothing on her. It's got nothing on my teacher. So Brahma came and then, and then mom was um, very touched because then she realized that her, her schleppy son was not so schleppy if Lord Brahma himself was coming to pay respects before he died. And so her faith opened. And then as a result of that, he started to recount the qualities of the Buddha. And listening to her, listening to him recount the qualities of the Buddha, she opened until she um, was able to see clearly and she realized the first stage of enlightenment. Okay. Now, that recollection of those qualities of the Buddha that Sariputta did for his mother at that occasion was the cornerstone of the chanting that we did in our liturgy. Okay, But nobody told me that. I just read about it, like, last summer, you know. I had no idea that that's actually the story of why the chanting was done and what the context was. But the point of it is, is, is that it's... It, the, it's meant to awaken your faith in, in the qualities of what awakening are about. That's what liturgies are about. That's what they're supposed to do. But the problem is, is that they get solidified and fixed. And then people fight about whether it's a this or a that, you know. And, you know, it seems to me like what's needed is for the liturgies to change you know, to constantly be changing and evolving with different people's sense of music, and that it keeps coming back to that, bringing that sense of how do we reflect on the qualities of the awakened mind in a way that allows us to respond. You know, what does that look like? You know, 
So I've been hoping for the last few years that people who are musicians and composers would take this stuff up and, and run with it. You know, what would it look like now? You know, how does it? How do we? How do we make this stuff do what what is good? That it opens and inspires and it is good. You know, what does it look like now? And so it's just you know it's an interesting question. Interesting question. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.